Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. As Christ followers, we find ourselves at an awkward place in the context of our culture. That could be said of a variety of different realities, but today I'm thinking of one specifically. We are caught between the fact that on the one hand, Jesus told us as his disciples to go tell the world, to share with the world the news that we have been given. That's on the one hand. And on the other hand, we have a world and a society and a culture that has become increasingly resistant to any such realities. I began to notice that in a particular way somewhere between 25 and 30 years ago. In fact, I can remember, not quite, but almost three decades ago, a conversation I had out here outside of our church between here and the hospital on the sidewalk with Clarence Schilt, who was one of the associate pastors of this congregation at that time. Our conversation surrounded the fact that there was an increasing sense within the culture around us, a growing stream in the culture. It was not only saying, we don't really want to hear it, but was saying, you don't have a right to share it. We didn't really know what to make of it. We weren't even sure we were making the right assessment. And we came to no conclusion. But I remember the conversation. It was sometime after that, probably two or three years after that, that I came across a story, and it was probably because I'd been thinking about such things that the story caught me. I want to read to you the words of the story written by Stanley Gady. S.D. Gady at that time, at the writing of the story, was provost of Gordon College back in the Boston area. So Gady wrote this. We live in strange times. Or the times we live in make strangers out of folks like me. I'm not sure which. That was brought home to me last summer while I was doing research at the University of California, Berkeley. I arrived at Berkeley during the middle of the day via the Bay Area Rapid Transit System, a system that the locals complain about but that seems nearly palatial to a Bostonian. The minute I left the subway and ascended to the street, however, I was overwhelmed not only by an entirely unfamiliar aesthetic, but by two distinct sounds. The first sound was rather tame and came from a man standing only a few feet away. He spoke out familiar words, words of repentance and salvation, words of the Bible, words of an evangelist. The second, much louder voice, came from a fellow across the street. His message was directed not at passers-by like me, but at the evangelists. He was in less than full agreement with the evangelists. In fact, he was heaping all manner of abuse upon him. What struck me, however, was that not the fact of his antagonism, but its content. For instead of accusing the evangelist of false teaching, he accused him of false practice. Instead of saying, not true, not true, the chosen mantra of this accuser was, 
Unfair. Unfair. What galled him, in other words, wasn't the fact that the evangelist proclaimed good news, but that the, he had the audacity to proclaim any bad news at all. The very bad news that sinners need to repent. That was unprincipled, unfair. It was intolerance, pure and simple, and according to the gentleman across the street, it didn't even deserve a hearing. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that you thank God, along with me, that we weren't called to be corner street preacher evangelists. I'm very thankful for that because I don't think that's the best way to communicate the good news of Jesus Christ. But having said that, what captured me in Gady's story were the words, unfair, unfair. You don't have the right to say that. Seems like there's a growing trend in our culture in those directions, particularly in faith-based matters. And so here we are caught between, on the one hand, Jesus saying, go tell them. And on the other hand, people saying, you have no right to tell us that. And then add to that one more piece. Add to that our common discomfort with sharing faith matters. I mean, I hope I'm not the only one here who can relate to the words of a writer named Stephen Bonzi, who writes in an article entitled, A Shy Person's Guide to the Practice of Evangelism. See if you can't also relate with these words. Here's what Bonzi writes. Let's pretend that you are someone who might be willing, in theory, at some point, possibly, to consider maybe doing something that, while not evangelism-type evangelism, still could be in some way construed as a sort of sharing of hope, kind of. <laughs> Am I the only one that can relate to that kind of experience, that kind of feeling? The only one who can relate to sitting down on an airplane and saying, Dear Jesus, please help them to put on noise-canceling headphones right over there. Am I the only one? And then we're caught. Jesus says, go tell them. We have our inner resistance. And then there's outward resistance as well. And we have to decide how to respond. I'd like to suggest to you today that the encounter between Jesus and a certain man told in Mark's Gospel, chapter 5, may point us in a very good direction on these matters. So we're going to go to Mark 5 this morning. As the story opens, it is likely still dark. The other story having just ended, the disciples and Jesus have arrived at the side of the lake to which they have traveled. They have just come out of a furious storm. They're a bit overwhelmed by what happened, but not compared to how utterly awed they are to discover that this Jesus who is with them in the boat has power over nature. They are stunned by that. So they're still living in that reality. It's still dark, likely just that hour before dawn, the darkest of the night, when they step onto dry land. And it is then that the night is pierced. 
The darkness is sliced into like a hot knife through butter by the screams and the shrieks and the wails of, of what? They must have been frightened almost beyond words. As a man possessed by spirits races toward them. I want to read the story, Mark chapter 5, but I want to ask you to do me a favor. As I read the story, would you be especially attentive to what it is that jumps out at you in the story? What grabs you? What do you notice? Mark 5, verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had been often chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off, <laughs> no kidding, and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man, told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. So what did you notice? So we read through the narrative. What jumped out at you? What grabbed your attention? I'm going to guess that there's somebody here today who said, you know what I noticed? Do you know what grabbed my attention? What grabbed my attention was that Jesus has gone to the other side to the land of the Gergesenes. He's left his homeland behind, the land of ancient Judaism, the land of monotheism. 
the land to which he belonged, the people to whom he belonged. He has gone to the other side. He's gone to what is now the modern-day Golan Heights, a territory that was almost as contested then as it has been in the modern time. He's gone to the other side. And, and maybe you say, I want to ask him the question, what are you doing over here? Jesus, rabbi, I know you're an itinerant rabbi, but you're a Jewish rabbi. What are you doing over here? You trying to take your mission to the whole world? I mean, wh what are you doing? What are you doing among these people? They're NOPs, Jesus. You know what NOPs are? Not our people. <laughs> what are you doing over here? So maybe that's what you noticed. If it was, it's a good thing to notice. I noticed it as well. Got me to thinking. But it wasn't the main thing I noticed. Or maybe you say, you know, I didn't notice it right away because it was still dark. I noticed it later. Had it been light when we landed, I would have noticed it immediately that this is a dark place. There are a lot of tombs around here. Death pervades this whole region. I haven't had the privilege of being precisely in that location, but I read that even to this day, you can see the evidence of dozens, possibly hundreds of tombs scattering the entire countryside, the mountainsides, the cliffs, with some tombs as large as 20 feet square and, and, and recessed areas in the tombs where the bodies could be laid. Maybe it was there that the demon-possessed man lived. In fact, I even read one scholar, one scholar who says, if you visit the area today, you will encounter troglodytes, people who still live in the tombs, and that you ought to be careful because they are no more friendly to unsuspecting tourists than was this man to the people who came through there in the ancient world. So maybe you would say that. Maybe you would say, I, I didn't notice it first. It was dark. When the light came up, I thought, whoa, what is this, a graveyard? Maybe that's what you noticed. I noticed it wasn't the main thing, but it was there. Or maybe what you noticed was what happened when you took a full deep breath of air. You know what it's like the morning after a storm when the, when, when the rain falling from the sky has washed the world, washed the atmosphere, washed the earth, and now what you feel, what you sense, what you smell is wet, clean freshness. Maybe you thought, I'll step onto the land, I'll pause, <sighs> take in a deep breath of fresh air, clean, and you did it. And then you said, oh, ooh, what is that smell? It, it, it's an aroma. It's a, it's a putrid, penetrating, unclean smell. 
Well, if you notice that, you're not alone. I want you to listen to two Bible scholars, Walter Wessel and Mark L. Strauss, as they write about that. Here's what they say. The theme of spiritual impurity or uncleanness runs through the narrative. The man is possessed by unclean, akathardos is the Greek word, unclean spirits. He's living among tombs, unclean by virtue of the corpses. The demons are sent into unclean animals which are destroyed. Through Jesus, the kingdom of God is invading and purifying the defiled realm of Satan. Whew, the stench of uncleanness is in the air. So maybe that's what you know. It's hard to ignore it. I noticed it, but it's not the main thing I noticed. Now, there's another reality that I think many, if not all of us, would say we noticed. I mean, how could you avoid it? How could you possibly miss in that narrative, in the scene of what unfolded there that morning, the sight and the sound of 2,000 squealing, shrieking, screaming porkers stampeding off the cliff to their death? How could you miss that? You, you, you hold your nose and cover your ears. It's overwhelming. And you think, have mercy. What just happened? That's these people's livelihood. Just gone into the drink. I'm sure you noticed that. I noticed that, absolutely. But it wasn't the main thing. In fact, another reality that I guess all of us noticed. In fact, another reality that no doubt made us frightened when we saw it was emerging out of the darkness comes this demon-crazed maniac, torn and bleeding, dragging chains, wild-eyed. That'll get your attention, even in that world. It's a scary reality. In fact, there were people who went around trying to exercise the demons from such people. The story of some of them is told in Acts 19. Made me think of it when I read through this narrative. The seven sons of Sceva. You may remember him. Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, seven sons. They fashioned themselves. They thought of themselves somewhat as exorcists. We'll go exercise demons from people. And so they had a saying that they used as they attempted to do this. I don't know what all happened except in one case told in Acts 19. In one case, the seven sons of Sceva find themselves face to face with a demoniac, much like this man, and they say to him, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, come out of him. You know what the demon said? Demon said, Paul I know and Jesus I know, but who are you? and jumped on all seven of them, beat them up so badly that the text says that they ran from the house bleeding and naked. <laughs> so be careful taking on a man like this. So you could not miss that scene. As we read the narrative, he had to dominate. He's coming right at us. Oh, I saw him. I saw it. it scared me, made me have itchy feet to run. 
But it wasn't the main thing I noticed. What did you notice? What jumped out at you? What grabbed you? I would be really surprised if someone here today didn't say, I'll tell you what grabbed me, Randy. What grabbed me was that man, all right, but not at that moment. A few moments later in the scene, when he is, he is he's sitting there, sane, clothed, in his right mind. That caught my attention. Then I said, whoa, what happened here? Well, if you say that's what caught your attention, you would be far from alone. Because after a bit, you can understand it, the people start filtering back and then running back. They have been reached by those who had witnessed what had happened, going into the Decapolis to tell in the ten cities, you've got to come, you won't believe it, we're poor. And so they came. And there he was. The former demoniac cleansed, sane. Did you notice what the text said? It said the people came, they saw him there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Oh, and also the pigs, the narrative adds. They didn't like that either, understandably. But this scared them. And so what do they say? They look at Jesus and they say, out of town, out of town. Get out of town. We don't want you here. They noticed that, which is quite remarkable. Because as I read the narrative, I thought, can you imagine that? They said, we would rather deal with a demon-possessed maniac than we would deal with this man with a new life. We would rather deal with our old pigs than with your new mind. So, Jesus, get out of town. If you say, that's what I noticed, then you're far from alone. A lot of people noticed that, and it had its consequence. I noticed it, but that's not the main thing I noticed. I want to tell you what the main thing that caught me, captured me. In fact, it almost grabbed me around the shirt and said, Listen, pay attention. That's how much it caught me. What I noticed was twofold. First, that this man whose life had been changed, that this man who had a new future, that this man who could think and rest for whom the turbulent soul had been calmed as surely as the sea had been calmed the night before, that this man wanted to go with Jesus, and Jesus said no. What in the world? I mean, Jesus, you've been walking across the countryside, just across this Sea of Galilee. You've been walking around saying to one person after another, follow me, follow me, follow me. You've been inviting people to follow you. You've been creating disciples, people who go everywhere with you, who watch what you say, 
Watch what you do. Listen to what you say. Observe how you act and whose lives have been fashioned then after yours. And you're telling them there's so many who want to come. You're saying, count the cost carefully. You'd better be ready to take up your cross daily and follow me before you come. You've taken it that seriously. And then here is this transformed man who says, I want to go with you. Do you know how the New Revised Standard Version renders the Greek there? Jesus refused. No, absolutely not. That gets my attention. Because Jesus is behaving here in a way that is out of character for him. And I want to know why. But it's not just that. It's secondly what he adds after having said no. Jesus, I want to go with you. No, you can't. But, but, here's what I want you to do. They've kicked me out of this country. They're throwing me out. I got to go. This is a dark area filled with the darkness of death and demons and a lack of a knowledge of the true God. This is an area that doesn't want to hear what I have to say, doesn't want to hear the gospel, doesn't want to hear the good news of the kingdom, wants nothing to do with any of it. And I got to go. I need a candle in the night. A candle that can start to light up the night. You can be that if you will just go tell them what I did for you. Just go tell your story. Go back to your home. Go back to your family. Go back to your friends and just say, look at me. There's what I was. Here's what I am. And the difference is Jesus of Nazareth. Just go tell them. Be a witness. Do you know that that statement that Jesus made echoes across the centuries, across the millennia? From a culture as alien to ours as we could imagine, from a time as distant to ours as we can think of a world away. And yet it's as though Jesus steps right into our current cultural milieu and gives us how to be a witness. Just tell them what I did for you and how I have had mercy on you. It can be very simple. It can be a doctor at the bedside of a frightened patient who says, you know, at a time of true fear in my own life, I prayed and I experienced peace. It can be a friend to a friend at the gymnasium while they're working out. I know what it is to be so hurried and so harried. Life is turbulent. Feel like your marriage is falling apart. I know what it is. But you know, I have discovered that early morning moments with Jesus do something to me. 
It can be a teacher to a student. I can so well remember when it seemed like I had no future, nothing there. And then I opened my life to Jesus, and the future opened up. It can be a parent to a wayward child. You just don't understand, Mom. You don't get it, Dad, do you? You don't know how messed up I am. Son, daughter, I can tell you that in my own life as a young person, there was a turbulence, an anger, a rebellion that you've never seen. And then Jesus. Jesus says, just go tell your story. Where has God had mercy on you? I think of these words drawn from the book Ministry of Healing, Ellen White. Our confession of his faithfulness is heaven's chosen agency for revealing Christ to the world. We are to acknowledge his grace as made known through the holy men of old. That's true. Scripture is vital. But notice what comes next. But that which will be most effectual is the testimony of our own experience. We are witnesses for God as we reveal in ourselves the working of a power that is divine. Every individual has a life distinct from all others and an experience differing essentially from theirs. God desires that our praise shall ascend to him marked with our own individuality. These precious acknowledgments to the praise of the glory of his grace when supported by a Christ-like life have an irresistible power that works for the salvation of souls. In other words, tell your story. If you are here this morning, you are here because there's somewhere in your life that Jesus has had mercy on you. There's somewhere in your life where he has poured his grace upon you. I would not be standing in this place without his grace, without the mercy that he extends. You would not be worshiping in this church did not those gentle wooings of the Spirit of God draw you into his presence and assure you no matter what your sin his grace is greater no matter what demons you fight his power is greater there's a place that he's poured his mercy his grace into your life and so in the midst of a culture that is dark and that is demon filled and that is uncertain about the future he simply says to you go tell them what I did for you how I reached into your heart and gave you newness and hope and a future. Just go tell them your story. That's a witness. That's what Jesus calls on us to do. How do you argue with that? If it's told winsomely, with humility, it has a compelling power to it. I love the line from William Barclay, the New Testament scholar, the late William Barclay. I've changed just one word in it, but I love the line, the sentiment that Barclay offers when he says, a witness is someone 
who makes it easier to believe in God. A witness is someone who makes it easier to believe in God. When you are beaten down, overwhelmed, overcome by the forces of darkness, and suddenly somebody stands before you that says, I was where you are. Now I'm where he placed me. Somehow it becomes easier to believe in God. So we're caught in that space. Jesus saying, tell the world. And the world saying, we don't want to hear it. So Jesus changes a life and then just says, go tell your story. That's a witness. And only two things are needed. One, an encounter with Jesus. And two, a willingness to share it. That is a witness.